Okay, now, um, today we're going to start a new short sermon series, just four weeks that we're calling The Walk. And really what The Walk is all about is together I want to look at some practices of our faith, some of the very practical things that we do as Christians and why we do them. And today we're going to start this off by talking about two practices that uh, the church has held for a really long time since the very beginning, two direct commands from Jesus himself. We're going to be talking today about communion and about baptism. And as I was sitting down to prepare this week, I was writing about communion and baptism, and I was making my points, and I kept referencing over and over and over the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And as I was writing, I realized, wait a minute, before we can really discover the beauty of these gifts that Jesus has given us in communion and baptism, before we can really understand just how wonderful these things are, we first have to understand what the Old and New Covenant are all about. Because listen, have you ever watched a movie with somebody who came in in the middle or came in toward the end of the movie and had no clue what was going on, but wanted to know, so they keep asking you questions like, now who is that? Some of you, you watched from the beginning, and you're still guilty of this, right? You say, who is that? Now, why are they doing that? Why are they going in there? And you're asking these questions because if you don't understand the beginning of the story, it's really hard to understand what's happening in the end. It's especially hard to understand why something is good news if you don't know what the other part of the story is. And so if we're going to understand communion and we're going to understand baptism, then we got to start a little earlier in the story, <clears throat> like the Garden of Eden, all the way back at the beginning. Okay, so here's how I'm going to do today's message. I'm going to tell you some story, and then we're going to dive into some scripture together before we get to a place where together in this message we'll take communion, and then we'll talk some about baptism toward the end, and then we'll worship some more, okay? So, at the very beginning of the story, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, where your Bible begins, God has a desire to have for himself a family to have for himself a people, a people that he can love on and lavish his grace upon. So God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing just by speaking it to existence. He makes everything and it's what? It's good. It's beautiful. It's balanced. Everything works together perfectly and in harmony. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates mankind, man and woman. He creates us in his very own image. And God places us in a in a garden that he specifically and specially designs just for our thriving. In the garden, God has a perfect relationship with mankind. He walks with us in the garden face to face. We're together and nothing separates us. And God makes a covenant, the very first one with Adam and Eve, that they can enjoy this perfect garden and this perfect existence with one single condition, that they do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But mankind rejects this covenant Mankind disobeys God and breaks their promise, and in that moment, sin, death, despair, difficulty, sickness, struggle, suffering, fear, pain, everything comes flooding into this world. It's now completely broken. But even on that terrible day, God in his incredible mercy and grace reveals his plan that one day he is going to restore our relationship with him forever. But it's going to come 
at an incredibly high price. Generation after generation um, is born into this earth and mankind, instead of growing uh, better and better, evolving stronger and stronger and smarter and smarter, mankind is de-evolving faster than you can imagine. Mankind is spinning down this cycle of disobedience, of pain, of suffering, of despair, until the Bible says it's literally the only thing people know is this terrible evil that's come upon us in sin has now infected us from the very core. And so God, out of His incredible grace and mercy, sends the flood and presses the reset button on all of creation. But He doesn't destroy everything. Our loving Heavenly Father spares one family, Noah, his sons, and their wives. And with them, God preserves this wonderful plan of His to one day save mankind once and for all from the effects of sin and death. And God makes a new covenant. A new covenant is made with Noah. God tells Noah, I will never destroy the earth by flood again. And God actually gives us a sign, a symbol of that new covenant by placing a rainbow in the sky. Now after this, God decides he picks one man, Abraham. Abram at that time, he makes him Abraham and his family, and he makes with Abraham a new covenant. He tells Abraham, Abraham, I am going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you. And one day your descendants are going to bless the entire world. God makes this promise with Abraham and Abraham to mark himself as a, as a recipient of this covenant circumcises himself and all of the male members of his household and all the future descendants of Abraham also enter into this covenant with God of circumcision. It's a visible sign given them to remember their covenant promises, that God would bless them and that they would be a blessing to the earth. Now, if you know the story, many generations pass. And Abraham's family descendants now find themselves in slavery in Egypt. They're numerous now, and Egypt sees their how big and how strong they become, and they begin to fear them, and they fear an uprising. So the Egyptians decide we need to, to, to lessen that chance for uprising by killing all of the firstborn male babies of the family of Abraham. So the terrible thing takes place and these babies are being killed, but one of them is preserved. A little boy named Noah is guarded by his mother and placed in a basket sent down the river where God in his providence has who, what? Didn't I say that? Oh, Noah? Noah was in the ark. That ark theme comes up a lot in scripture, by the way, but Moses was put in a different kind of ark and placed in a basket in the river. And as Moses floats down the river, who finds him? Well, Pharaoh's own daughter. He's raised in the household of Pharaoh himself. He's trained in all of the ways of Egypt and all the wisdom of Egypt. <coughs> Only to one day have God speak to him in that uh, flaming bush. If you remember the story, he leaves Egypt. He's been living in the countryside. And Moses is told by God, you're going to go back and you're going to set my people free. And he goes back and he tells Pharaoh. And to no one's surprise, Pharaoh thinks that losing his entire workforce is a bad idea. So Pharaoh says, no, I'm not doing that. And so God begins to send the plagues. And he sends 10 of these plagues upon Egypt 
Plague after plague comes, and they have the opportunity, once again, to let my people go. You remember the story. You've seen Charleston Heston probably do it a bunch of times, right? He says no. The next plague comes. He says no until the final plague. On the last night of their captivity, God gives very specific instructions to the people of Israel that they are going to, on that night, celebrate what we know as the very first Passover. That night, they're going to take the blood of the lamb, they're going to paint it over their doors and down the posts, and every house that has that blood of the lamb painted over it, that night when the angel of death comes, the angel will pass over the house that has the blood, and if there's no blood present, then the firstborn male of that household is going to die. That night, God gave them this, this, um, this new symbol, this new sign for them to remember. In fact, he told them, you're going to keep doing this. This wasn't just a one-time thing. God told his people that they were going to keep remembering the Passover year after year as a symbol, as a sign of what God was doing that night. That night, God miraculously freed his people. Upon awaking the following morning, Pharaoh says, get out of here. The people actually pick up. They begin to leave. The Egyptians are actually giving them uh, their gold and their wealth as the people leave. Some of the Egyptians are just joining them. They're taking herds and flocks, and they get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has a change of heart. He decides, actually, I want them back or I want them dead. So he sends his army out with chariots to kill all of these millions that have just left his country. And God opens miraculously the Red Sea. His people walk across on dry ground. The Egyptians pursue and God closes the Red Sea upon them and they are destroyed. Now the people have made it to the other side of the Red Sea. Now what's going to happen? Well, God says, I want you to come to the mountain and meet with me. I want to speak to you. I want to give you these new commandments and enter into a new covenant relationship with you. So the people go to the mountain and they send Moses up on the mountain as their representative. And God spells out the new terms of the covenant that he's going to live in with humanity. We know this as the Ten Commandments. Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and why God is still writing these things down for us by his own hand, meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, the Israelites have built for themselves a golden idol, a calf, and they are worshiping that golden calf and saying, this calf is really the one responsible for our freedom. It's the calf that led us out of Egypt and preserved us as we crossed over the Red Sea. And in another enormous um, just showing of God's goodness and his grace, he does not just destroy those people there that day at the mountain. In fact, even after Moses breaks the tablets containing the commandments, God writes them down a second time for us. God makes a new covenant once again, because here's the reality, sin Our struggle with sin is always going to be a problem. We can't hold up our end of the bargain. So God provides us a way to deal with, even though symbolically, the sin that keeps us messing up over and over again. So God lays out what we now know as the law. Much bigger than just the Ten Commandments, the whole sacrificial system and everything else included. And this time... Israel makes a good decision. They decide to accept the terms of God's 
promise of God's covenant. And here it is. We actually have it written down what happened next. Exodus 24, 3-11. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said and we will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on all the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. It's amazing. So Moses sprinkles this blood from the altar over the people, much like before the blood was placed over the door uh, and on the night of judgment, the, the judgment uh, angel of death passed over their home. Now the sprinkling of blood represented the fact that blood had been shed for the sinfulness of the people. And this becomes a new common practice for the Israelites. The symbol of the Mosaic covenant, the blood shed by the sacrificing of the animals is going to represent that we are an unclean people who are sinful and need the shedding of blood in order to cover over our sin. So the priests went through this regularly. The priests like Aaron had to have the blood uh, sprinkled on themselves to get them ready to enter into the tabernacle. Each day in the morning sacrifices, they would go into the tabernacle or later in the temple, and they would sprinkle this blood that was uh, shed from the altar into the building. And what it represented is ritually that there, our sin had a price that had to be paid, that our sin was being covered by the blood that had been shed. Now, we remember they said, we'll, we'll obey everything you said, we need to obey, but if you know the story, you know that's not true, right? That mankind, even with this provision made for us by God, is just not able to keep up our end of the bargain, we're just not able to do it. So Israel's history is one of sin, disobedience, worshiping false gods, followed by, if you remember, during the time of the law, they would worship false gods, which then they would fall under God's judgment. They would suffer. They would cry out to God, and he'd save them, and then they'd fall. They'd just go back and forth and back and forth all throughout the Old Testament until finally... We actually get to see the people of Israel after 40 years wandering in the desert because of their sin and a whole generation dying, we get to see them take hold of the promised land. The land promised to Abraham and his descendants, the nation actually gets to take hold of, but they don't do it completely. They don't do it the way that God told them to do it. They don't obey him fully. So as a result, they end up falling into this constant cycle of idolatry and sin. 
over and over until the point comes, actually, which you just can't even believe, they finally take hold of the promised land, and then it gets taken from them. They lose the promised land. They lose first the northern kingdom after a civil war. They're split. The southern kingdom, they get carried off into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and things are looking really dark. But friends, it's during that time period of captivity that God begins to speak to the prophets about a new covenant that God is going to make between himself and mankind. It's during their time in captivity that Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So God begins to promise this new covenant that he himself is going to write on our own hearts and in our own minds. He says our sins will be forgiven completely and remembered by God no more. Now the prophet Ezekiel is going to add some more detail. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I'll give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender and responsive heart. I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. See, God, in his amazing love and mercy, says that he himself is going to cleanse us, to purify us once and for all. God is going to take our sinful, hard, disobedient hearts and give us a brand new heart. We are going to get a heart transplant for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's utterly stunning. It's amazing. And he says then, not only that, I'll not only give you a new heart, I'll put my very own spirit into you. I myself will live in you. My spirit will live in you. It will empower you. See, friends, this is the new covenant that Jesus came to this earth to usher in. But this first, this new covenant was going to require sacrifice the same way that the old covenant required sacrifice. The shedding of blood was going to be a, a mandatory for this new covenant to be ratified, for this new covenant to come into effect. And not just any blood was going to work for the new covenant. It wasn't going to be the blood of lambs or bulls or rams. It was going to be the blood of God himself. Think of that. God who spoke that creation to being at the beginning, God himself was going to come down to earth. 
He was going to demonstrate for us in humanity by becoming one of us, taking on flesh, becoming a human being, needing a mom to nurse him and change his diaper. God was going to live a perfect life on this earth, the life he designed for us to live, and then he was going to lay his own life down willingly on the altar of sacrifice. This is why before Jesus ever speaks a word, just think about this. In John chapter 1, Jesus has not yet begun his public ministry. He's not said a word since the time we have in the gospel of him at age 12 in the temple in the book of Luke. Now, Jesus is on the scene in John chapter 1, and this is what we hear John the Baptist say. It says, the next day, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I didn't recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. When John testified, I, then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove from heaven and rest upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one to whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. See, John had been out in the wilderness preparing the way for the coming Messiah, telling everyone to get ready, telling everyone they needed to repent of their sin, telling everyone that they would finally see the one that had been promised. And when he sees him, what does he say? I find it so curious that the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth when he sees Jesus is, look, a lamb. What? Think about the crowd that day that's there. Look, a lamb. And Jesus is the one walking towards them. Why in the world is he referencing this lamb of God when he sees Jesus coming? Because right from the very beginning, John the Baptist understood that Jesus was here on a mission to be a sacrifice for our sin. That by sacrificing himself, on the cross, that was going to be the way that he was able to give us and baptize us with his very own spirit. So now, let's fast forward a minute. We go three years into the future from that moment, and Jesus is gathered together with his disciples in the upper room. Now, just two weeks ago, Thursday night, right before uh, Easter, it was the night that this was taking place. Jesus gathered in the upper room with his disciples for Passover on his very last. Now, he'd done this before. For at least three years, he'd celebrated Passover with his disciples. They were gathered. They'd gone through the elements. And remember, what was Passover all about? The fact that the blood of the lamb had covered over the household and that the angel of death would pass over their house because the shedding of the blood of the lamb. And the whole table, God had spelled out how they ate, what they ate, when they ate it, what prayers they offered. God had given them this ritual, this sign, so that they would every year be able to remember 
remember, okay, this is what God has done for us. This is what God is doing for us. This is what God is going to do for us. So Jesus sets this table out, and they're eating the way they've always eaten, but all of a sudden, Jesus changes the program. Now, that's not something you do, just so you know. Jesus changed the program. The thing that they'd done in the past suddenly becomes very different. Luke twenty-two nineteen. Jesus says he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes the bread from the table. Now it's Passover. So one of the things that we know about the bread on the table that night was that it would have been unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, meaning it didn't have any yeast in it. The reason it didn't have any yeast in it is during Passover, they actually got all the yeast out of their house. Because yeast, during Passover, God used this as an analogy for us. Yeast represented sin, mankind's sinfulness. So we put that sin out of the house during the festival. And so now Jesus picks up this piece of unleavened bread that represented the fact that uh, it, it was without sin. And Jesus breaks this bread, and then, verse 20, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now remember, the disciples were really confused. Because had Jesus been sacrificed on the cross yet? They didn't get it. Remember, they kept saying, like, what is he talking about? Why does he keep saying he's going somewhere that we can't go? What, what, what's happening here? And Jesus breaks the spread. So this is my body broken for you. Here's my blood poured out for you. I don't think they fully understood what was happening in this moment. But one of the words that would have really piqued their interest, friends, I promise you, is Jesus says, this is the cup of what? The new covenant. Jesus is changing the program here, friends. Listen to what the author of Hebrews tells us about this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 10. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under the system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in scriptures. First, Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. 
For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their heart and I will write them on their minds. Then he says... I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And, and when sins have been forgiven, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices. The old system, the old covenant, the old ways for us, friends, is over. The covenant between God and his people that was ratified on the mountain with Moses has, according to uh, Scripture, come to an end. Why? Because a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb was sacrificed on our behalf. This, friends, is the good news of the new covenant. God says... That if we place our faith, our hope, our trust in Jesus Christ, if we confess our sin, He will forgive our sin. That His death will actually count as our death. That His resurrection will actually count as our resurrection. God has invited us through Christ to have a heart transplant. God has invited us through Christ to have our hard, sinful hearts replaced and be given a brand new heart once and for all. Your sin was transferred to Jesus Christ on the cross. Once and for all. So today, you and I are invited to receive the free gift that Jesus paid so dearly to purchase for you and I. This brings us to communion. What was Jesus doing that night as he invited his disciples to participate in communion? He was giving us a new, uh, a new way that he could demonstrate to us, that he could remind us of these truths that we're talking about right now. This is the meaning of the Last Supper table. It is a covenant table. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It was given to us by Jesus as a way to remember this powerful truth, friends, that we are talking about here this morning. So here's what Paul tells the Corinthian church, Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread. He gave thanks for it. He broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. 
So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So church, I want to invite you today. I want to start with the bread side. If you grabbed a communion cup on your way in today, as they were all available at the door with a sign saying, grab one of these for the service today. If you didn't get one, you can go back there and grab one. But we're going to take communion together this morning. So here's what I'd like you to do. I would like you to open up the bread end and take out the bread. And as you hold on to this bread in your hand, I want you just for a moment to feel what this symbolizes. I want you to feel the weight and the significance of what you are holding in your hand. You are holding in your hand a gift that Jesus gave us to remember what he did for us by sacrificing his own body. He said, he told us that this bread represented his body that was broken for us. So take this bread and receive this gift from the Lord this morning. Next, go ahead and open the grape juice. Jesus wants you and I to remember that he has entered into a new covenant with mankind. His blood is what purchased for us the right, the ability to enter into this promise. Paul tells us every single time that we take this, we are to be reminded, we are to remember what Jesus has done for us. So let's receive his blood shed for us. Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful new covenant. Seems like not enough words to say about it, Jesus. That you yourself would die for us so that we, Jesus, could have a new heart, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could have a relationship with the Father, so that we could be filled with your Spirit. Jesus, today we remember. We receive your body and blood. And I pray that we would do that, God. And it would absolutely, daily, remind us of what you did for us and just how good this all is. Thank you for this new covenant. Amen. Now, quickly, because I we've talked covered the covenant part. We're going to talk about baptism just for a moment. See, remember Abraham? Abraham had a symbol given to him as a covenant sign, a way they actually marked their body through circumcision as the way that they demonstrated that they'd entered into this new relationship with God. The good news for us is God gave us a new sign, 
a different sign than the original. No longer through circumcision do we enter into, do we demonstrate this new covenant between God and mankind. We are told by Jesus that now we enter into this new, we demonstrate our entrance into this new covenant through baptism. See, it's through baptism that we mark ourselves as believers. Baptism doesn't make you a believer, but you become a believer and you enter into, you mark yourself as set apart and become obedient to this new covenant life through baptism. See, baptism actually demonstrates the work of Jesus practically. It's not just for you. Everyone else gets to see this. You are being joined to Jesus in his death and brought back to join Jesus in his life. You are brought together into this union, into this relationship with God. I'm dying to my old ways and my old self, and I'm coming to life in Christ. It's symbolic of these wonderful truths. Romans 6, 4 through 5. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, one of the wonderful things, baptism not only is this symbolic thing where we where we're go under representing Jesus' death and resurrection, but it also joins us together with a brand new family. See, one of the wonderful things about baptism is we are baptized into something. We're baptized into the fellowship of the local church. As we're baptized, we are going, I no longer am what I was, and now I'm something brand new and I'm joined together with this regenerated community that we know as the local church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. See, water baptism is a picture of this wonderful reality that's taking place. No longer is it just about the Jew that was circumcised. Now, all people, all men, all women, everybody from no matter what race, no matter what clan, is invited to join into the family. And baptism is how we mark that joining together of the family. Galatians 3, 27 through 28. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are baptized into this new wonderful family. Friends, I just have one, I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come back up. I just have one more thing I want to say about baptism. Because I think this is so important. So many of us have been waiting or making excuses about the reason why we haven't yet been obedient to God with baptism. We keep thinking, well, there'll be a time down the road. There'll be another day. Uh, I prefer this method or that method or this person or that person. So I'm going to just wait. And so I want to give you one more reason that I think you should be baptized, okay? Here it is, because Jesus says so. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I want you to think about the ramifications of this. 
Jesus said, this is right before he raises to heaven to sit on the throne after his resurrection from the dead. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you start your sentence that way, don't you think we should listen to what he says next? This is Jesus risen from the dead on his way to his throne in heaven who says all authority on heaven and on earth is mine. We should probably listen to what comes next. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, Jesus, with all authority on heaven and on earth, the supreme ruler of the universe, the sovereign of sovereigns, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the one who by him and through him all things were created, he says, be baptized. That's good enough for me, friends. Jesus himself was baptized. And he said, that the reason he was baptized is it was good as a symbol for you and I. Friends, I want to encourage you. If you have not yet been baptized, I believe it's a step of obedience that all believers need to take. The same way that circumcision existed for the people of Israel, God is asking his people to be baptized. Why? It doesn't make you a Christian, but it does make you obedient. It does make you joined into the family of God. It does represent something. It is meaningful. It does matter. Jesus commanded these two things, baptism and communion. So I think we should take both of them seriously. I think there are two areas that we very, very need to see the weight and the importance of. It's why I want to spend so much time talking to you about the new and the old covenant today. Because, friends, I want you to see the beauty of what communion and baptism represent. I want you to see the price that was paid. I want you to see the generation of generation of generation of people who were faithful to God longed to live in the day in which you and I get to live. They had to go through all of those rituals, all of those rites, all of that sacrifice. You and I have sacrifices been made once and for all for our sin. And we have the gift of communion to remember that sacrifice. We have the gift of baptism to be joined together with God and his people. So friends, I'd encourage you. If you haven't been baptized, let's talk. We're going to baptize again next week. We'll probably baptize again the week after that. And the week after that, because here's what I believe. I believe that this is an essential step of our obedience to our faith. And as we take that step, I believe you'll see wonderful, wonderful reward come to your life.